Lesson one, basic hip. Welcome to the jazz session. I'm Jason Crane. The jazz session is presented by AllAboutJazz.com, the web's leading source for jazz news, reviews, MP3 downloads, and more. Every episode of the show is also available for free in iTunes and at thejazzsession.com, where you'll also find Amazon links to purchase the music heard on the show and a donate button if you'd like to support the show directly. It's free. You don't need to do that. But hey, do your karma some good and kick in some bread, why don't you? My guest today is baritone saxophonist and composer Fred Ho. He and his Green Monster Big Band have a new album out called Celestial Green Monster. And in it, there are both new works, um, works by other composers, and older works by Fred. And uh, one of them, I guess we'll do the oldest one on the album, is called Blues to the Freedom Fighters. It dates back to My guest is a composer, arranger, band leader, baritone saxophonist Fred Ho. He and the Green Monster Big Band have a great new record out called Celestial Green Monster. And it is my pleasure to welcome Fred to the show. Thanks for being here. My pleasure, too, Jason. I really enjoyed uh, this record and uh, was really happy when it, when it came into the mailbox. And it seems to me like um, a very kind of surprising uh, combination of both pop culture references and... Um, you know, the very progressive kind of revolutionary politics that I know are a big part of who you are, all wrapped up in this this large ensemble uh, package. Can you talk a little bit about what some of your, your goals for this record were? Simply to document my um, big band writing since I was a teenager, because I wasn't sure I was going to be alive. Um, just before we recorded that project, I was diagnosed with my third colorectal cancer tumor. I've been fighting colorectal cancer since I was diagnosed in August of 2006. And I was then given one in 30,000 chances of living because I basically went through a massive, very brutal war against cancer with two preceding tumors. The first tumor I was given fairly good odds, basically about 60% odds of living. Then when the second tumor happened to recurrence, I was given less than 50% chance. And when a third tumor appeared, I was given one in 30,000 chances of living. So I decided, I, you know, whether I lived or died, I was going to assemble my favorite musicians over the last 30 years. And there's so many of them, so a big band was the natural form for that. And uh, play some uh, the music that I wrote when I was a teenager back in the mid-1970s. And then my last big work uh, before I was diagnosed which was commissioned by Temple University in Philadelphia, The Struggle for a New World Suite, which is a, almost a 40-minute 40, 40 work. Um, so that was really my intention, to gather the musicians that, that I've loved playing with for the last three decades and to kind of review my big band writing uh, since my days as a teenager. 
and also to, to contribute a couple of new things, pieces that come out of popular culture that uh, were both, I guess, uh, emblematic of my um, youth, um, my fascination with Marvel Comics, hence the Spider-Man theme, um, and then uh, the big influence that rock music played on me during the mid-1960s, hence the Iron Butterfly classic, Inagata DeVita. about just the having had my own family experiences with people going through cancer treatment um, you know it's a it is a cliche to say but sometimes the treatment is uh, worse than the disease and I, I wonder about the just the the challenge of putting together an album this ambitious while you were in the middle of your third uh, round of treatment well it was hard because uh, I only recovered from the second uh, tumor uh, surgery and chemo multiple chemotherapies um, late August, and then I went out to teach. I could barely walk, but I went to teach at the University of Wisconsin-Madison, where I was an artist and resident for the fall semester. Then I was just about getting some strength back. The diagnosis of the third tumor came, came along. But I decided rather than just be sullen about the whole thing, I would, you know, uh, cheerfully deal with the situation and uh, assemble this band, do this project, um, you know, but uh, I wasn't really sure if I was going to live, but I was determined to live, and I was going to, you know, be determined to keep making music till till my last breath. So um, that's why this project is very, very important for me. I hadn't released a recording in several years. Uh, I was interrupted by um, a cancer diagnosis. So, um, you know, whether I was going to live after the treatment for my third tumor, at least I wanted... Um, you know, uh, there to be some kind of uh, uh, record, if you will, of, uh, you know, what uh, musically was important to me. And uh, I've always, even when I've written for small groups, always loved the large concept. You know, um, one of the things that I've been fortunate to teach myself is, you know, how to make uh, even small-scale projects sound like big, big-scale projects. Um, the possibility of the epic um you know, has always 
you know, been um, uh, kind of signature to, to, to my arranging and composing uh, abilities. So I wanted something that would really be an epic statement. Um, and, uh, you know, the, the, the battle against car- the cancer battle has, has, been, has been epic. Um, I don't know too many people who have survived, uh, you know, what I've been through. And, uh, uh, you know, I, I've been through seven surgeries. Uh, I exhausted every single chemotherapy drug multiple times that has been invented by the Western Medical Establishment. Um, you know, so by all accounts, um, you know, I should be dead. And, uh, you know, I've been able to, all my life, been a guerrilla fighter, warrior, turn pain into power. And uh, I just continued with that. I was on automatic pilot in terms of, you know, fighting uh, cancer. And uh, I have to say that, that the tremendous amount of love that I received from people um, was really, I think, the linchpin in... Um, my survival and uh for that i'm forever grateful and uh i think part of that love comes from people's uh appreciation and admiration for what i've contributed musically so you know whatever was going to happen i still wanted to contribute musically as much as i could Fred, what appeals to you about writing for large ensembles, which you've obviously been doing for 30-plus years now? Just the entire uh, cosmic possibilities for sound. Um, you know, that uh, uh, we don't have to be accepting of the status quo or what Sun Ra said, you know, that everything possible has been tried, but nothing has changed. What we need is the impossible and I find that with larger numbers of forces, with you know, singers and musicians and dancers and martial artists and video artists in this collaborative process, that we can really imagine uh, new worlds. And, uh, you know, that's, I think, been in line with my political commitment uh, to not be content with compromise um, or attenuation or pragmatism, but to imagine the impossible and to pursue it and realize it. 
So I find that, you know, uh, working with extended forms and with uh, greater forces, and that is just more than just musicians, but, you know, um, stage directors, choreographers, lighting designers, costume designers, uh, performers of all kinds, um, that, you know, we can really um, be limitless and boundless in our imagination, and imagination is the key to... um, realizing a new future. I know uh, in your career that you've uh, worked with uh, song forms and performance forms that have uh, lyrics or stories attached to them, but in the case of instrumental music, how do you uh, how do you best advance some sort of political message when you don't have any words to work with? I think that you can advance it even greater than with lyrics in the sense that uh, when you are explicit with uh, words, they, uh, that does not... Uh, uh, you know, because it's explicit, uh, is not as abstract or demanding of the imagination. So I find that instrumental music demands more from the imagination, both from the creator as, as well as from the listener, and also from the performers. Um, so I, I really find that instrumental music is really about evocation. You know, it's about the evocation and visualization of ideas and emotions simultaneously and about possibilities, you know, hearing inside of textures and rhythms and so forth that even um, the, what the creator, beyond what the creator intends you to hear. So um, in that sense, I find that instrumental music or anything that really works on the realm of abstraction and emotion is a far more effective catalyst than things that work on simply the level of the intellect. And the intellect can be either lyrical or explicit, or it can be, um, you know, uh, what I would say, music that uh, primarily is, you know, um, uh, rational. You know, music that uh, adheres to strict technical and uh, systemic concepts, but don't challenge them. So uh, in that sense, I think that the imagination is far uh, more potent than craft. I think that people can be prisoners of their training, of their craft, of of their traditions, and so forth. So in that sense, my focus is on the future, not on the past, and uh, how we can evoke the possibilities for that future.
you have some techniques that you use to help you not write in a, an idiomatic way or in a way that you're particularly comfortable with to help you break out of those, those structures? My technique, as the late great Bruce Lee uh, would put it, is to have no technique. Which sounded nice when he said it, too. And I, I guess my question is what that means when you actually uh, have a blank piece of staff paper in front of you or whatever mode you use to compose. Uh, what, what does that mean? What, what are some of the next steps for you? Well, the main thing is to take yourself intellectually and emotionally to a place that you haven't been nor where anyone else has been. And from that, because you've practiced and worked at and studied for so long that it's become internalized and intuitive that um, you don't fall upon any tropes or any conventions or any rules for that matter. Though when I look at my piece, you know, I, I constantly revise, but I don't revise a whole lot. When I'm done, I'm done, and I know that it's correct, um, even though it may be difficult and challenging to execute or perform. Uh, I'm convinced of it. I, I've heard it already inside of me, uh, and it's ready to go. It's ready to be rehearsed. Um, so there are really no answers for that. I mean, you know, I have composition students, and I can teach composition, but I teach it from, from the point of view of really figuring out what's inside of the, the composer and helping them really get clear about what they want to say, you know, not be uh, equivocating, not be wishy-washy, but really be forceful in what they have to say. So, you know, I look at their voicings, for instance, like if they're going to write for five saxophones, a standard saxophone section in the big band, I look at those voicings and I ask them, is that the most imaginative thing that you can say with that voicing? You know, or is, are you repeating Frank Foster? Are you repeating Thad Jones? Are you repeating Toshiko Akiyoshi? You know, they've done this voicing before. What can you find? You know, uh, you know, listen to Super Sax. How do they, you know, uh, voice the Charlie Parker line? You know, are you repeating that? Are you copying that? You know, uh, maybe not deliberately or, you know, with intent of plagiarism, but, you know, have you really pushed yourself, you know, to go beyond uh, you know, what's been done already, you know, have you thought about, uh, how much you rely upon your training or convention or familiarity and not push yourself beyond that? You know, and I do that with myself all the time. When, you know, when you listen to the struggle for the new world suite, for instance, you know, the voicings and so forth, like students at Temple University said, man, it sounds like, you know, you've got, uh, Stravinsky in there. You've got like a lot of modern, you know, 20th century people like Charles Warren and, and Elliot Carter in there. And I said, well, you know, those are my friends. I mean, you know, Carter and, and Warren and I know personally, but, you know, I don't, I don't, uh, what I try to do is actually be very conscious that I'm not uh, evoking something from them, you know, and uh, uh, in that sense, you know, I, I don't really, I mean, I studied, you know, Thad Jones's work, and I studied Frank Foster's work, and I studied all the big band writers. You know, and I consciously decide I'm not going to follow uh, what they've done and really try to push myself to, to, to be original.
Does choosing very familiar source material like the, the Spider-Man theme or Inagata Davida, does that place an additional challenge on that pursuit? Very much so, because I don't want to write unison. I want to use 12-tone technique, for instance, in my vertical voicings of that vamp line. Da, 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 da. You know, uh, I don't want, you know, I have five saxophones, four trumpets, and five trombones in terms of horns. Okay, so that exceeds 12 tones. You know, and sometimes I give some a player like Hafez Modirzadeh, the Iranian-American, what he, what he would call a chromodal or variable temperament part. Of, you know, I sketch out the, uh, the line for him, but I said, don't play it using Western diatonic temperament. Play it use, using Persian quarter tone, you know, and that's what I think gives the, the, the spice and the bite to these horn lines. Um, you know, because many people would say, well, you can, you know, these are rock songs. You've you got to voice them uh, following the, the, the rules. And, uh, you know, I threw out the rules. But I wanted to show that you can take, quote, unquote, simple material, uh, you know, like rock tunes, uh, you know, and, uh, uh, you know, some people have been critical of me saying, well, man, Fred Hozo, you it's like retreating now because he's dealing with popular source material, but, you know, rather than accept that popular culture is about dumbing down, I'm trying to smarten it up, you know, and uh, have have uh, the spirit of uh, free collective improvisation at the same time, you know, highly composed material that demands people play way outside of Western consciousness, you know, so when they play these lines, for instance, I don't want them, you know, I tell the sax section, don't ever play, uh, you know, in fixed temperament. And, uh, you know, I have a sax section that has that consciousness to, to be aware of that rather than playing, you know, quote-unquote, in tune. And I, in fact, I remember growing up how saxophonists, you know, in the big band sections that I play in were pissed off at me because I didn't want to play in tune. You know, uh, I wanted to create a lot more tension in the sound, uh, you know, but playing in tune is really, you know, submission to, you know, Western European, Eurocentric, uh, you know, uh, hegemony over sound. And I've always challenged that. So, you know, um, I found it very exciting to work with hand-selected players who have the consciousness to interpret what I want. Um, you know, because we share, we're united in, in um, you know, challenging um the diatonic system and moving away from the metric.
you mentioned revision earlier. When you looked back at compositions from 74 and 75 in the case of Blues to the Freedom Fighters and Liberation Genesis, did you find that you still thought of them as, as completed works that didn't need much to do, or, or had they had your conception of what they should be changed in the intervening three decades? You know, I just put out a book of my collected political and cultural theoretical writings called Wicked Theory, Naked Practice, a Fred Ho reader published by the University of Minnesota Press. And I didn't change any of my, uh, you know, my ideas in that. In fact, I think there was something I said incorrect about Ishmael Reed, and then Ishmael took me to task about it, and I basically said, Ishmael, I was wrong, and um, but I wanted people to know that I'm wrong, so read exactly what I said when it was wrong, rather than my using my consciousness in, in, in the 21st century and correcting this stuff. See what I said back then and, and see the arc, the trajectory. Um, don't be fixated just upon one viewpoint at one particular historical conjuncture, but, you know, look at the arc of everything. Uh, so, you know, the same thing with my uh, two pieces, Liberation Genesis and Blues to the Freedom Fighters. They were written in the mid-1970s when I was a teenager. Um, but I still feel that they can stand up and hold their own. And I did not want to uh, revise them in any way because that was my consciousness then, which I think is still uh, valid and important. I mean, I wrote those pieces during the height of the, uh, I, I think you would call it the third world uh, consciousness. You know, um, Blues of the Freedom Fighters was opposing the U.S. aggression in Southeast Asia, and Liberation Genesis was this explosion of hope in um you know, developing Asian and African consciousness when we were, you know, limited to, to thinking of ourselves as Orientals or Negroes. So, uh, you know, I feel that that, that the, those, those uh, sentiments and those stances are still as important as ever. Will you talk about the struggle for a new world suite and uh, what what was the purpose of its commission and were you given some thematic uh, material for the commission or how did that work? Well, only the only thing was, you know, it was for a college band, so I wanted to make sure it wasn't, you know, like the ranges on the trumpets weren't exceeding those of what a trumpet player, music major in, in college could execute. Um so that's, you know, the commission comes from Temple University, which is based in Philadelphia. And for the last 20 years, I've been a major supporter of the political prisoner, Mumia Abu-Jamal, who is an African-American journalist from Philadelphia, and the MOVE organization, a MOVE, an organization that was literally bombed uh, by uh, Wilson Good, then mayor of Philadelphia. Uh, you know, an entire neighborhood was basically napalmed. Um, you know, and I've been big supporters of both Mumia and, and Move, and Mumia, of course, is a Move has, has been a major supporter of Mumia's freedom. Uh, um, so, you know, I wanted something that Philadelphians uh, would have to confront. You know, um, so that the piece was designed to be a, uh, an honoring of the Move organization and what they stand for. Musically, I was approaching this from the point of view of, you know, music that was really outside of the box, yet at the same time very rooted in the community, you know, that uh, connected to the traditions, you know, because their philosophy, the philosophy of John Africa, is a philosophy based on natural and organic life and living and uh, uh, how human communities 
need to be much more in tune with uh, natural processes. Uh, so, you know, I wanted that in, in the way I approached music, but at the same time, um, not be solipsistic, things that worship the past, not, you know, things that are atavistic, you know, I'm sorry, not solipsistic, atavistic, you know, blindly worshiping the past, but, uh, you know, that uh, we're connected to history and tradition at the same time, uh, we're revolutionary. Uh, so hence the use of complex meters and, you know, uh, very tightly voiced and dissonant harmonies and so forth. Is it important for the audience to understand or, or even to know about the, the programmatic aspects of the music when they hear one of your pieces? No. It's like asking is it important that they know the intent of the artist. Um, you know, uh, the, uh, the artist you know, has agency, has intention, but uh, I would like to feel that the art that I make is a catalyst, that it begins a journey for the listener Maybe not necessarily in the same direction that I'm going, but that the journey is ignited, that they, um, uh, you know, start to explore and have an investigative uh, uh, attitude, you know, that um, they, they think about things from a different kind of viewpoint or perspective, um, that they can, you know, be exploratory, be open. So in that sense, I really see my, my work uh, irregardless of my own intentions, to be a catalyst. Um, and I'm not a control freak, so I don't necessarily have to feel like you have to subscribe to uh, my intentions uh, or ideas, but, you, but you know, you should uh, open your mind and your soul and be receptive uh, to some, some, some new possibilities. Fred, folks who want to come out and see you have an opportunity in April, is that right? Yes, April 22nd, uh, Thursday evening, I'm performing at the Brooklyn College Gershwin Theater with my Afro-Asian music ensemble. And uh, opening for us is the, the large ensemble of Brooklyn College's uh, jazz department led by Dr. Salim Washington uh, performing 
the Black Liberation Movement Suite, the epic wor- work written by the late great composer Cal Massey, who died in the early 1970s, but left this monumental uh, work that uh, only in parts have been recorded. You can find them, I think, on several Archie Shep records during the 1970s, only you know in certain movements, but not in its entirety. As a completed work, uh, completed original work um, that stands up to any of the major uh, uh, pieces, whether it be you know Mingus's uh, uh, "Let My Children Hear Music" or "Epitaph" or uh, the Ellington Sacred Concerts, you know, um, it, 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 it ranks among those uh, uh, monumental epic uh, suites. That sounds pretty amazing, and uh, listeners can follow the links in the show notes to find out more information uh, about Fred and about that performance. My guest is Fred Ho. Uh, He and his Green Monster big band have a new album called Celestial Green Monster. It is uh, well worth your attention. And Fred, it's been a real pleasure talking to you. I thank you for taking the time to talk about the music. Thank you, Jason. That's music from Fred Ho and his new album, Celestial Green Monster. I'm Jason Crane. This is The Jazz Session, presented by All About Jazz, the web's leading source for jazz news, reviews, MP3 downloads, and more. You can find every episode of the show in iTunes. You'll also find it online at thejazzsession.com, where you'll also find the mailing list and the Facebook group and the Twitter feed and a donate button and Amazon links to buy the music that you hear and probably other things. Oh, show notes that always have links to the artist's websites. 
It is a cornucopia of jazzy goodness. So head on over there and check that out. And while you're on the web, you may as well go over to respectsextet.com because who knows, they may be coming to a venue near you and uh, they're well worth hearing. You hear them each and every show. They played the theme music for this program and I thank them for that. Dave Rabel designed the show's logo. Thanks, Dave. And thank you for listening. Please support live jazz whenever and wherever you can and then come back next time for another conversation about jazz on the Jazz Session. Thank you for listening, everybody. Bye. Bye. Bye.